Afternoon, thank you for waiting. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. In December 2001, then interim Argentine president, Adolfo Rodriguez Sá, who was president only for a week, announced before Congress that Argentina will default on $81 billion of its debt, the largest sovereign debt default in history. Rodriguez was interrupted by a standing ovation and chants of Argentina, Argentina. Thus began a decade-long contentious legal and political battle between the Argentine government and its creditors. In 2005 and 2010, Argentina reached a settlement with most of its creditors who agreed to swap their old bonds with heavily discounted new bonds. However, a group of holdout creditors challenged Argentina in the courts. This long standoff is nearing judicial resolution. In October 2012, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit sided with plaintiffs to rule that Argentina must treat all of its creditors equally and pay owners of defaulted bonds issued under New York law. Back in Argentina, the recent midterm elections demonstrated the rapidly declining popularity of President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and her Peronist Front for Victory Party, where its share of the vote declined from 54% in 2009 to 33% last month. After a decade of recovery from default, Argentina's protectionist trade policies and self-imposed exile from capital markets have produced rampant inflation rates and, growing, and a growing black market economy. Unfortunately, Argentina, Argentina continues its long march to economic decline, being perhaps a unique case in world history of de-development. That is, a country that 100 years ago was among the most prosperous on earth, it is now a showcase of economic mismanagement and missed opportunities. As a result of all this, in the last decade, bilateral relations between Buenos Aires and Washington have markedly deteriorated following long-time mistreatment of U.S. creditors and companies doing business in Argentina. This case is seen as a significant test having direct implications for the sanctity and enforceability of U.S. law, the protection of creditor rights, the future of debt finance development in emerging markets, and the integrity of New York City as a paramount center of international finance. Today, we're pleased to present a distinguished panel of experts. We will discuss whether the U.S. courts can force Argentina to comply with the rule of law, and to what extent the court's authority is affected by the constraints of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. We will also hear about whether this case will set a precedent for future debt restructuring processes, and what consequences will Argentina face if it chooses to default once again on its debt. And more importantly, we will ask what is the path to settlement between U.S. creditors and Buenos Aires, and ultimately to Argentina regaining its position in global markets and prosperity. Our first speaker is Richard Sam. He is uh, chief counsel of the Washington Legal Foundation, a nonprofit public interest law firm located in Washington, D.C. The Washington Legal Foundation litigates in support of individual rights and the free enterprise system and against excessive government regulation. Sam has been with the Washington Legal uh, Foundation since 1989. He practices regularly before the US Supreme Court and other federal courts with a specialty in healthcare law. 
Sam is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Michigan Law School. Before in the Washington Legal Foundation, he clerked for federal judge in Michigan and was a litigator to the Washington, D.C. law firm of Shaw Hitman. Please help me welcome Mr. Richard Sam. Thank you, Juan. It's my pleasure to be here today. I, as the first speaker, have been asked to uh, devote most of my time to uh, just giving a, a general background of what led up to the litigation in the Second Circuit and where it stands now. So I apologize to those of you who are already fully up to speed on it, but I thought it would probably be a good idea to, to uh, get some background information on the table. Um, just a little bit of background. The, the traditional rule in the United States courts uh, has been that foreign sovereign governments were immune from uh, any sort of court action as a, basically a matter of reciprocity. Uh, uh, we didn't uh, allow other countries to be sued here, and they didn't allow uh, uh, the United States to be sued in their courts. Uh, however, uh, uh, when third world countries were not treating American creditors very well, the traditional way to collect on debts was through gunboat diplomacy and invade the country. So that era of United States diplomacy, I think, is over. And so with the uh, uh, ending of that era, I think that uh, the uh, courts came to the conclusion that, it, that uh, uh, there had to be some way to bring governments into court, particularly if they were directly involved in commercial activities of some sort. Uh, so that, um, uh, and furthermore, foreign countries want to be able to uh, uh, have access to credit markets, and they realize that unless they uh, allow creditors some means of, of recovering on their, on their investments that they probably are going to be uh, somewhat reluctant to, to lend money in the first place. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was adopted in 1976 by Congress, and it um, carried forward the uh, tradition that had been adopted for several decades before then of allowing uh, a limited uh, uh, access against a foreign sovereign in U.S. courts. Uh, but Congress's thought was, up to that point for the prior 20 years, it had been pretty much up to the executive branch to decide when a foreign government was going to be immune and when not. And so uh, by adopting the FSIA, Congress was intending to create clear rules, take the power away from the executive branch of, of determining immunity on a case-by-case -case basis, but rather have the courts decided based on the rules that were part of the law. The uh, principal uh, uh, exception to the general rule of immunity is that the, uh, a nation's commercial activities uh, are subject to uh, suit in a foreign country. And the uh, US Supreme Court, in a decision by the name of Argentina versus Weltover, uh, held that issuing uh, bonds is a commercial activity, so that in general there is no immunity in U.S. courts from suits over one uh, bonds. Uh, furthermore, there is a specific provision in uh, the uh, FSIA that, that gives a foreign government the right to, uh, uh, to waive its immunity from suit, uh, and uh, just not, they can't waive immunity from uh, 
seizure of their assets uh, so that in uh, most bond agreements, uh, the creditors will say that uh, they, they require the, the uh, foreign government that is the debtor to uh, agree to waive their immunity from suit. But as I said, there really was no immunity uh, on bonds in the first place. Um, Argentina uh, is a uh, country which uh, I think creditors are particularly eager to get those sort of waiver agreements from because of its a long history of default that goes back 200 years. Um, the bonds that are at issue in this particular case were issued in 1994, and uh, Argentina agreed to waiver, and they also agreed that uh, uh, that uh, New York law would govern any disputes, and that the either the federal or state courts of New York could hear any cases of this sort. Um, as Juan mentioned earlier, by 19, by 2001, Argentina owed 80 billion dollars and was in a position where they really could not pay all of their debts. Um, now, in similar situations, most countries will sit down with creditors and say, look, here are our books, we can't pay, uh, and uh, let's try to work something out. Argentina did not enter into any sort of negotiations. Instead, it just simply said, uh, we're, we're imposing a moratorium, maybe someday we'll pay, but but not for now, and that was the last really anybody heard from Argentina for about four years. Finally, in 2005, rather than entering in any negotiations, it uh, uh, issued a, uh, um, uh, a take-it-or-leave-it offer uh, where they essentially said you can accept some new exchange bonds that were worth somewhat less than 30% of the face value of the old bonds, uh, and uh, if you don't accept that offer, you get nothing. And furthermore, we're going to pass a law that makes it absolutely clear that you can't sue in Argentina, the Argentinian courts for your debt, and we promise that uh, uh, we will never pay you anything unless you uh, agree. And about 76% of the bondholders uh, did agree um, uh, to these conditions, but uh, obviously there were many holdouts who did not agree, and that gave rise to the current litigation. Uh, a number of the of the creditors filed suit and obtained judgments in uh, a federal court in New York. Uh, however, Argentina has never paid on any of those judgments. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, how do you collect on the judgment? Well, you can uh, have access to the assets of a foreign government to the extent that they are located here in the United States and to the extent that... Uh, 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 that uh, they involve some sort of commercial activity. But in general, the, the creditors uh, who got judgments were not able to collect. Uh, there is, for example, it was an effort to try to collect from the assets of the Argentinian Central Bank. There was an effort to uh, seize a, uh, a training ship that was uh, found in uh, Africa, but uh, 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 those efforts really did not amount to very much, and so very few assets have actually been recovered. That uh, uh, caused one group of creditors, led by uh, uh, NML Capital, to uh, try a new approach. Now every one of these bonds uh, has what's called a parapassu clause, which essentially says that uh, we're not going to subordinate 
the uh, your debt to somebody else's uh, equivalent debt, uh, and uh, so what the uh, uh, NML creditors argued uh, in federal court in New York was that Parapasu clause was being violated. They noted that the Argentinian Parapasu clause uh, had language that was somewhat unique and was stronger than some other um, uh, similar clauses in that it explicitly said that equal treatment had to be provided to all creditors. And uh, the, uh, the meaning of these kind of clauses uh, has been widely disputed. And in fact, in general, they have not been uh, in, enforced widely uh, up until the last 10 years. Um, but uh, the Southern District of New York issued an injunction in uh, first in late 2011 and then a second one in early 2012 that said that uh, that by paying interest on the bonds of those people who had had exchange bonds in 2005 but absolutely refusing to even talk to the holdouts or to make any payments whatsoever to them and not paying their judgments that uh, that violated the uh, uh, equal treatment provision of the bond agreement and so uh, uh, the question was, well, what do you do about that violation? The district court said, I'm going to issue an injunction, and I'm not going to require you to pay anything. But if you do pay interest, you must uh, provide equal treatment to, um, uh, to the uh, holdout bondholders. And, if you, and it also uh, interpreted equal treatment as meaning that if you pay 100% of the interest that is due on the the uh, exchange bonds that you must pay 100% of what is owed to the to the holdouts. That uh, decision was uh, appealed to the Second Circuit. The United States filed a front of the court brief in support of Argentina, as did a number of the holders of exchange bonds, because obviously they were very fearful that if uh, uh, Argentina were held to the terms of this injunction, that Argentina would just simply default on all of its bonds. Uh, the uh, uh, Second Circuit um, issued an, its decision in October of 2012. It affirmed the district court's injunction, um, but it, it had a couple of points that it wanted to have clarified. It remanded the case back to the district court, which immediately in uh, uh, November of 2012 affirmed its initial injunction and said, I really did mean that uh, uh, what I said about the injunction, and furthermore, uh, intermediary banks um, uh, that are part of the process by which money gets from Argentina to uh, the exchange bondholders, uh, once they have notice of this injunction, uh, they are not to, uh, to assist Argentina in trying to evade the injunction or else they would be in contempt of court as well. So the Argentina filed a uh, second um, uh, appeal. The United States did not join that second appeal. Uh, the case was argued in early 2013, and then in August of 2013, the Second Circuit um, uh, affirmed its original decision. However, it granted a stay pending appeal, which means that uh, there can be um, continued payment of interest uh, to the uh, exchange bondholders without violating the terms of the injunction uh, while the, uh, uh, the case goes forward. Once Argentina had that uh, uh, 
stay in effect. It obviously has no longer has any interest in moving things forward quickly. It um, uh, had already filed a cert petition from the very from the first decision, the one that was issued in in uh, October of 2012, and rehearing was denied in that case in about. Uh, I would say February of 2013. So it filed a, a, a cert petition thinking that it needed to move forward quickly. That cert petition was denied in October of 2013. But in the meantime, in August of 2013, the Second Circuit had granted a stay uh, pending a renewed cert petition. So Argentina no longer had uh, uh, any uh, reason to move forward. The Supreme Court's of course, provides no explanation as to why it denies review. Um, very possibly, it, it did so because of the preliminary nature of the first cert petition, because uh, it, the Supreme Court generally likes to go forward only after all of the issues have been resolved, which they weren't until the Second Circuit had affirmed the second decision, uh, the second injunction, uh, in August of uh, 2013. The um, So Argentina not being in a hurry, decided to file a petition for rehearing on Bonk and the Second Circuit. It did that uh, um, uh, fairly quickly. The Second Circuit, I believe, in either this past October or November, denied that rehearing petition. Uh, that gives Argentina 90 days to file a cert petition. Uh, uh, it, it also generally is allowed up to a 60-day extension of time. So I think it's its petition right now would be due uh, in February of 2014. However, it probably can easily get an extension till April of 2014. Then uh, uh, the Supreme Court might be able to rule on whether to grant the petition as early as June, but it also very likely might request the, uh, uh, the Solicitor General to file a brief uh, in support of the, uh, or either in support or of, uh, uh, opposed to the certiorari petition, that process can take another seven or eight months. So it's possible that this case would not, the Supreme Court would not decide whether even to hear the case until 2015, which would be just about the end of, of President Kirshner's term. The, there's been a little bit of, of uh, news lately in the case because there's also a second case, uh, it's somewhat confusing, it's, but it goes by the very same name, NML Capital versus Argentina. Uh, in addition to going forward with uh, its request for injunctive relief, uh, the holdouts have been seeking to get discovery, document discovery, to figure out where Argentina might have uh, non-exempt assets located all around the world. The district court ordered that discovery go forward. The Second Circuit affirmed that. That Second Circuit decision conflicts with a decision in another case from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. And so uh, there is a circuit split, which is something that causes potentially the Supreme Court to hear a case. Um, the uh, Supreme Court last April asked the Solicitor General to file a brief in that case, which the Solicitor did last week and the Solicitor General recommended that the Supreme Court hear this discovery case. It's obviously quite different than the case involving uh, uh, the uh, injunction on the Paracasu Clause because 
for one thing, there is the circuit split. For another thing, it raises totally different issues under the FSIA. Um, now, the FSIA has a provision that uh, says that uh, property is immune from attachment in general, but uh, then the question is, is the injunction by the district court actually an attachment? Uh, the Washington Legal Foundation, my group, filed a brief in the Second Circuit saying, no, it really is not an attachment. Argentina is not being ordered to pay anything. Rather, uh, they're just ordered to treat people equally, and therefore it doesn't violate the FSIA. But if the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, that will be the issue it agrees to hear. Um, it almost certainly will not agree to hear the issue of whether or not the Parapassu Clause was properly interpreted that really is an issue of New York State contract law and uh, is not something that, that the court would normally delve into. Uh, the, also, the, the question that you'll probably be hearing from some of the other speakers is, well, does an injunction of this sort hamper renegotiation of, of sovereign debt generally, and therefore is it a bad idea to allow this sort of thing to go forward? Um, that's an issue that might be of interest to the court, but, but frankly, it's probably much more interested in trying to interpret the words of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So um, with that, I will allow some of your other speakers to uh, give some of their views, and I'd be happy to answer questions if you have them later. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sam. Our next speaker is uh, Julian Ku. He's a professor of law and faculty director of international programs at the Morris Aydin School of Law at Hofstra. Hofstra University. His primary research interest is the relationship of international law to national law, both in the public and private sphere. Most of his research has focused on the United States, but he's all, he also conducts uh, research in, into China and international law. He's the co-author of Taming Globalization, International Law, the U.S. Constitution, and the New World Order. Order. He has also published more than 40 law review articles, book chapters, and symposia essays. Before joining the Hofstra Law Faculty in 2002, Professor Ku served as a law clerk to Judge Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit, and as an Olin Fellow and lecturer in law and at the University of Virginia Law School. He has also been a visiting professor at the College of William and Mary Marshall White School of Law in Williamsburg, Virginia, and a Fulbright Distinguished Lecturer in Law at East China University of Political Science and Law in Shanghai, China. Please let me, please let's welcome uh, Professor Ku. Well, thank you very much, Juan, and thanks, uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for having me. I, um, Long admired the Cato Institute. Uh, this is my first chance to actually visit. I think I might have tried to become an intern many moons ago. Uh, never quite aspired, made it past the gates there. Um, but here I am, so I'm excited. Um, and thank you so much for uh, joining. And you get the, the lawyers first, so I'll try not to uh, 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 overdo it here. But I did think um, that it would be useful to focus on one aspect, what I find interesting about uh, the saga between Argentina and really, uh, and its creditors, uh, is that this has been a dispute between a sovereign, a foreign government, um, and a group of private creditors. Um, but it's been playing out in U.S. courts, in U.S. domestic courts, and particularly in U.S. and New York courts. And this is a very interesting uh, example. This doesn't happen very often. This is the type of issue that I've been interested in. 
uh, in my research. So what I'm going to try to talk about, I'll try not to repeat too much of what Rich just went through, are uh, the way that sovereign immunity doctrines and the law of sovereign immunity affects the ability of private creditors, as in this case, to uh, collect or enforce uh, obligations that sovereigns undertake uh, when they raise money in capital markets. Um, so I'll skip over. This doesn't look as long as, it'll, <laughs> as it looks. Um, I want to sort of focus on one aspect of Argentina's from a legal perspective, one aspect of why I think Argentina and other sovereigns enter the United States, and especially the New York capital markets, uh, what's kind of odd about this whole situation from a legal perspective? Uh, for me, what's most fascinating is Argentina's waiver and, and the utter meaninglessness of this waiver ultimately for legal purposes, even though it sounds kind of interesting. Uh, and it's meaningless, not really because of Argentina exactly, but because of the way the United States has designed its law of foreign sovereign immunity. And I want to talk a little bit about how our system affects the ability of private creditors to enforce their rights under these debt instruments. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about um, the way that there's been, a, I think, an interesting idea that NML and the other creditors have found here, which is a workaround, um, the problem that the US law sets up. And I have a couple ideas for what's going to happen in the future and how we might fix some of the problems I see. All right, so as Rich mentioned, the, the general historical rule in the United States is you're immune. If you're a foreign sovereign, and literally in the old days it was a person, right, the Queen of England, you're immune. And John Marshall, uh, very early on, 1812, you know, declared this is absolute. Like you can't, you can't. A U.S. court cannot touch a foreign sovereign or his property. Um, the one exception was waiver. And so, even in 1812, it was clear that the U.S. courts would recognize the ability of, of, of foreign sovereigns to waive. Um, their immunity. And this came up a lot when people tried to enforce debts against foreign sovereigns. Um, but I mean, the caveat under US law was that, sure, you can waive it, but the sovereign can revoke the waiver whenever they choose. And so inevitably, you would go after a sovereign in US court. And at the moment you filed your case, the sovereign said, OK, I'm sorry, the waiver, I'm done. All right, no, no, I didn't mean that. I revoke it. Done. Court, and the US court would dismiss the case. So this is sort of the traditional rule under US law. Now, this sort of is uh, a little bit of background, which sort of lays the ground for why Argentina's waiver in 1994 is a little bit odd, um, or is, it's, it's interpreted, has some strange effects. If you read the language of the waiver, it's pretty clear, right? Uh, some lawyer in New York drafted this for Argentina. In fact, I, know the, I think I know which law firm did this. Um, Argentina has irrevocably agreed not to claim and has irrevocably waived such immunity to the full extent permitted by laws of such jurisdiction consents generally to the purpose of the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act for those giving any relief. This is what was in the document that was issued to private creditors who were considering essentially whether to purchase uh, uh, Argentina's debt instruments in 1994. They also went further, and not all waivers include this, said, we also waive immunity from attachment. Um, so to the extent Rich is right, he, well, I'll explain why he's right in a second, but actually the waiver reads as if Argentina will also waive any immunity to execution of the, uh, of, uh, over their assets. And so this sounds pretty good if you're a private creditor because you say, oh, well, they waived their you know, immunity and, and they waived uh, their immunity from execution, which is a, a separate issue under the law. In other words, not only do we waive our immunity to the court, but we'll also waive any immunity to uh, the ability to collect on our assets. And so rest assured, private creditor, before you buy our debt, uh, we're here. And not only that, we submit to the jurisdiction of New York courts 
right, which ordinarily they wouldn't have to submit to. Okay? So this was in the 1994 uh, debt instrument that Argentina uh, issued. All right, so as I point out, as I sort of highlighted, this is an utter meaning, this is almost completely meaningless, this waiver. Okay? I don't even, it's almost, I mean, it's not completely, but it's, as, as a, its practical effect, practical effect is pretty meaningless. Um, if you were to, as Rich mentioned, how much money has been collected against Argentinas? The answer is zero. Zero, 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 right? Despite this waiver, no one since 2002 in all the litigations in the U.S. court, and there have been many litigations, not a single penny has been collected against Argentina, right? The waiver is ultimately not actually doing very much work, at least from a legal perspective. And why is that? And this goes back to what Rich was talking about earlier, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Or more broadly, the, the doctrine that foreign sovereigns should have immunity in United States courts. As I mentioned earlier, the original rule, the Marsh, Chief Justice Marshall rules, sovereigns can revoke waivers after litigation arose, and basically they're free from any uh, jurisdiction in U.S. courts. But after World War II, the United States recognized that many foreign sovereigns and their state-owned companies were essentially engaged in commercial activities, and so they wanted those companies, the state-owned industries, and sovereigns to be subject to U.S. jurisdiction in some cases. Uh, this was codified in 1976 by Congress, um, and all, which also made clear that you can't revoke your waiver anymore, so that was the one rule they did get rid of, um, um, and that you can't be immune if you're a foreign sovereign if you engage in commercial activities. And then interestingly, in 1991, the U.S. Supreme Court also found that when, you, when a sovereign comes to the United States and issues sovereign debt. Um, that's actually a commercial activity. That wasn't always understood uh, before that at that time. That was a relatively uh, big decision. So, um, so why can't creditors collect? Well, hidden in the bowels of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is section 1610 and 1611, literally at the end of the act. And as Rich mentioned, I'm repeating him a little bit here, which is it limits the execution of judgments. In other words, you can go to trial and say, you owe me, Argentina. And several courts have said, you owe. There's no di dispute. You owe them money. But uh, it, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act still limits the, what we call the execution of judgments, literally your ability to force them to pay you. <laughs> um, and only assets used for commercial activity in the United States uh, may be uh, executed on. And it further, the FSIA further excludes uh, central bank property held for its own account, uh, military, any assets which are related to military activities um, and, diplomatic, uh, and diplomatic assets are separately uh, protected. All right, now, why, why does the FSI do this? Well, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? You, you wouldn't want, or at least the concern at the time when they enacted this was that the foreign policy problems of private creditors running around seizing central bank assets, uh, military-related assets, or diplomatic assets would maybe go beyond whatever we think benefits we would give to private creditors and being able to, to bring uh, foreign sovereigns uh, into court. Um, but as about, but sort of the, uh, the, the effect of this <laughs> is that foreign sovereigns can play this game. There's almost no chance that they'll leave any assets once they realize they're heading toward default. There's no chance that they'll leave any assets that are used for commercial activity within the jurisdiction of New York courts or, frankly, in the United States. And so... Uh, other foreign sovereigns uh, have done this before. Argentina simply removed uh, their assets, made sure they had no assets that were attachable in the United States before they declared their default. And so even though billions of dollars have been declared uh, 
in money judgments against Argentina, there have been no assets to collect on this. I think Rich has already explained this problem. Okay. So what's interesting now is that the creditors didn't give up. Um, and uh, through hiring probably some of the best lawyers in New York, they came up with two strategies to work around. And Rich has mentioned both of these. Let me talk a little bit about the central bank uh, strategy, which actually I kind of liked, but which uh, the court didn't. Um, the argument here is that the central bank, Argentina was using its central bank to kind of funnel payments to its bondholders. Um, and that really the central bank, although it's a central bank, is really just, it's just a bank that's paying debts for Argentina. And so it's not fair that they get to sort of use this immunity to, to sort of conduct activities uh, in the United States. This was rejected by the Court of Appeals for complicated reasons I won't go into here, although I, I like this argument, but I'm sad that it was kind of rejected. Um, the second approach, the second workaround, which has been much more successful, which described in great detail, is the Parapisu equal treatment argument. And that's been upheld, and that's most likely to be what goes, if it does go to the Supreme Court, will be uh, this issue of Parapisu. But even the Parapisu issue, which is as Rich mentioned, uh, is going to be come back to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. If it goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to argue about not really whether or not you have to give equal treatment to the holdout creditors, but you have to really, they're going to argue that really this is the injunction, the district court issues an attachment of assets outside the United States, which is beyond the scope of the um, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Okay, good. Um, I'm speeding along <laughs> here. Okay, so, um, so I'm pretty sure this is going to be uh, the issue that they, they think about here. And, uh, and this is kind of, as Rich already discussed, this is kind of a complicated issue. He, uh, he has taken a position, uh, this is not attachment. I think it, this kind of makes sense uh, on its face. Attachment, which if you're not lawyers, or even if you are, you may have forgotten if you are lawyers. Um, attachment is, is the, the one concept is you run to court and you say, court, give me an attachment of those assets before the, as a preliminary, typically a preliminary um, uh, measure to keep a, a potential debtor from running away with their money. <laughs> so freeze it, don't move it, you can't leave the jurisdiction, we want that stuff to be held before, uh, and you can't, um, you know, take it away before we try to uh, vindicate our rights on it. Um, and this is, a, this is something that Argentina actually explicitly said that is okay, although they, um, they're arguing now that we're not going to allow, you can't attach our stuff outside the U.S. Now, um, the U.S., uh, the opponents or the, the creditors will argue there's not an attachment because there's no order from the court in the United States to pay any, out of any particular bank account or they're not requiring Argentina to sell their, you know, sell their Air Force or turn over their Air Force or anything like that. They're just saying, wherever you have money, just bring it here and pay us, right? We don't care wherever the money is. In fact, oddly enough, the court said, you can even just not pay us at all as long as you don't pay those other guys. And so we're, this is fundamentally different from um, an attachment. That does seem like a pretty strong argument. Um, but I do think that there's at least going to be a lot of pressure if the U.S. government supports Argentina uh, for the Supreme Court to actually resolve this issue. All right, so um, here's what I would sort of take uh, as I sort of, uh, from my perspective on this issue. Um, I think that the, it bothers me that we essentially have this system where foreign sovereigns walk into the United States markets, uh, submit to the U.S. Uh, legal system, waive all their immunities, and essentially walk out and are able to avoid pretty much any of the obligations that they undertook. In other words, they're, it looks like they're submitting to the U.S. legal system, 
but through this sort of complicated web of laws, in fact, they're not really submitting to US, US legal system at all, pretty much. And I think that the larger principle here is that when foreign sovereigns come to the United States and seek to raise money from private creditors, um, to the extent possible, they should really be try we should try to subject them to the same legal obligations as private companies do when they are entering the US markets to raise capital from private investors. And I think this is the principle we've slowly been building to over the years in the 1991 uh, Supreme Court case, which also involved Argentina, Argentina versus Weltover, that there's this idea that when, when, uh, when foreign countries, foreign governments even, are acting in a sort of commercial capacity, uh, they should to some extent be subject to, it's, it's right to subject them uh, to US uh, law, because especially when they're engaging in what are essentially contracts, uh, private transactions with private citizens. This is not the US government lending them money. This, these are private creditors. Now, a lot of them are currently sophisticated financial investors, but not all of them are, are so. So that, this is, I think, a principle that we've kind of got lost here uh, amidst all the uh, yelling about uh, Argentina. And then what bothers me about the way the US system works is that it effectively makes foreign sovereign waivers meaningless for most private creditors. And perhaps they know this, they should know this, but it still bugs me that it's essentially a waste of everyone's time to go through the process of drafting it. And so I, that's why I, I do think the, par, the what I call the workaround that the creditors have come up with, the Parapasu workaround, which I think on its own merits has some strength to it, but I think is, to me, a way to get around this problem of what really is going on here. Argentina said, hi, we're coming to U.S. courts. We're, we're submitting U.S. jurisdiction. And in fact, they turned out they didn't really mean it to some degree. Um, and so that, and so I think if we, one way to think about this going forward in the future, Argentina may be uniquely uh, a difficult case. It's probably a uniquely bad debtor in some ways. Um, but I'll leave it to the, the, our experts on whether that's true or not. Um, but from a legal purpose going forward, what, are, what is our system? I think that one way to solve this, or at least to mitigate the problem, at least for me, of this waiver, is to read the general waivers that, like Argentina, to be broader. Um, there actually is a possibility. You can actually waive your immunity for your central bank property. The court interpreted the waiver to exclude central bank property. Um, but I think you could read these waivers, like Argentina's, more broadly to say, look, you want to come to US markets uh, and raise money, uh, and you, you issue a waiver like you did, which is so broad, you know, we should try to read this broadly to um, include a property that really is attachable. Um, and I do think that one thing we don't want to do in reforms is there's been a lot of talk, especially in the international law field, what we need to do is take this away from the courts, take this away from US courts. It's unseemly for an American court to be sitting judgment on a foreign sovereign with, like Argentina. And I suppose that's true to some degree, um, although, you know, again, Argentina has sort of uh, submitted to this. I think domestic courts actually are, have been a good form, and they've been very uh, deferential. In fact, they give many advantages to uh, Argentina that perhaps an international court would not. Um, but I think international mechanisms at least for now, are probably are going to be weighted too much in favor of sovereigns. Sovereigns create international mechanisms. Sovereigns can design it in ways that are going to be very hard. I think would not, although the domestic system is not the great system to do this, I'm, I'm not myself optimistic about the ability to design a fair, uh, meaningful international uh, law system or international institution that would resolve uh, these sort of debt disputes. And I think one last point perhaps the courts take a little too seriously is this concern about New York and we're going to ruin it for all the New York bankers out there who profit a lot from 
the work that foreign sovereigns bring to them when they raise money in New York. And that one argument has been raised, which is that we're, they're all going to run to London or some other jurisdiction that's favorable to them. Um, and uh, foreign sovereigns and the whole system of finance will fall apart. And again, again, I don't, I'm not an expert on this issue. I don't myself worry that much about New York bankers and the New York financial services industry, although I should since I actually, perhaps I should, but I, I don't. It would ruin my real estate values, but I, I don't worry about it as much as I should. And um, also, I'm not even sure, and this is something perhaps other folks have, whether it's such a bad idea to deter foreign sovereigns from issuing new debt in general. <laughs> but to the extent they do, I think it's, it's not, I think that our system, if we can tweak it for using domestic courts, is, is, a, is a pretty good system of that, or the best we can come up with for resolving these disputes if we can make these waivers more meaningful. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. Our next speaker is uh, Ms. Elena Duggar. Uh, she's Moody's uh, Group Credit Officer for Sovereign Risk, covering the global sovereign ratings portfolio and a voting member of Moody's Public Sector Credit Committee, which is in charge with the approval of sovereign and public sector rating methodologies. Ms. Duggar is a voting member of Moody's Macroeconomic Board and author of Moody's Macroeconomic Outlook. She's the author of Moody's Sovereign Default Series, Country Resilience Methodology, Sovereign and Emerging Markets Corporate Default Series, and her research work is frequently cited in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and leading financial media. Prior to joining Moody's, Ms. Duggar was an economist with the IMF, analyzing financial sector stability issues in the Capital and Monetary Policy Department. She holds a PhD in economics in U University of California at Berkeley and a BA in economics from Bates College. Please help me welcome Ms. Elena Duggar. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to address... Okay. In my remarks today, I'm going to address two, two issues. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, what the case of Argentina looks like as stacked against the historical experience with sovereign defaults. And from there, I'll also talk about what can we say about possible implications of the court rulings in the case of Argentina for future sovereign debt restructurings. I'm uh, summarizing some of the research that uh, we've published in Moody's over the past year or so. I've given the, uh, I will show you some of the empirical results in my slides today. I've also given the links to the reports if people are interested in more details, they're available on Moody's website. Uh, before, before I go into the details, uh, I'm a, I must say I'm an economist by training, so I'm getting an, an economist perspective here, not, not a legal perspective. <laughs> from my side, and also need Amino Moody's advocate any particular approach to, to sovereign debt restructurings. What our research does is try to size the experience of Argentina compared to the historical experience with other sovereign debt restructurings and see how representative that is. And from there, tries to size possible implications for future sovereign debt restructurings. Uh, with that, the first thing I'd like to show you today is that the case of Argentina is unique, and it's, it's uh, an outlier in terms of its experience with, uh, sovereign, with its sovereign debt restructuring, not on one or two dimensions, but on a whole uh, a range of, of dimensions. Argentina was really the only one of the modern era sovereign bond exchanges that resulted in persistent litigation. It was unique in terms of, uh, first, the economic 
banking and sort of debt crisis is the time of the default, the severity of the crisis is the time of the default, the losses involved in the debt exchange. It was also outlined in terms of the size, the complexity of the debt exchange, the contentiousness of the negotiation process, the size of the holdout debt, and also the sort of the length of, of the litigation process. In general, looking at the historical evidence, what we find is that sovereign bond restructurings on average have been resolved quickly without severe creditor coordination problems and involving little litigation. Before I, I'll go into the points and I'll show you the evidence uh, on, on each of those uh, aspects. Before I do that, let me show you the sample that we're working with here. So we're looking at the sovereign bond exchanges since 1997. That's what's termed the modern era of uh, sovereign bond issuance. Uh, there, have been, there have been 34 sovereign bond exchanges since then, relatively geographically diversified. So if you look at the sample, a third of it is in Europe, a third of it is Central America and the Caribbean region, 20% uh, South America, 15% in Africa, and there generally have been very few sovereign defaults in, in Asia. So going back to Argentina, the first thing that was extreme, and we have to remember this, is the the... the sort of severity and the disruptiveness of the crisis at the time of the 2001-2002 period. Argentina experienced extremely severe economic crisis, banking crisis, debt crisis, and political crisis at the time. The contraction, I've picked here the, the contraction in, in real output and the movement in the exchange rate, the real output shrank by about a quarter over the four years of the crisis, which is extremely severe economic disruption. The chart plots, you can see the, the contrast with the experience of Jamaica, for example. And also, the exchange rate developed, after the crisis, the exchange rate developed by about 70%, which is also unprecedented large. Connected to the severity of the economic crisis were also the size of the losses imposed on investors during the debt restructuring. So the 2005 Argentinian foreign debt exchange imposed losses of the order of 70% measured in, in net present value terms. To compare to the average sovereign debt restructuring, uh, losses on average were about 47%. So they were much larger in the case of Argentina, and Argentina was only one of uh, six exchanges over the past 20 years that imposed losses of that magnitude. So if you see the, the scatter plot here shows the losses in the debt exchange on the vertical axis and time to negotiate the exchange on the horizontal axis. We'll come back to the negotiation times, but in terms of the losses, there were really just six exchanges that had such large losses. Russia, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Seychelles, Ecuador, Greece, and of course, Argentina. The complexity of the debt exchange was another, another factor which was very different in the case of Argentina. So we're looking at almost 80 billion of debt equivalent to over 50% of GDP. 152 different bond series across eight governing laws, six different currencies, and very dispersed credit structure. To contrast with the typical sovereign debt exchange, a typical sovereign bond restructuring would involve only a few bond series across one or two governing laws, and the average size of a debt exchange was about 16 billion of debt, so four times smaller. Uh, the only debt exchange that was actually larger than Argentina was the Greece, Greek exchange last year. Now, unlike the case of Argentina, the typical sovereign bond restructuring was resolved relatively quickly. So we basically find that the average bond restructuring closed within 10 months after the government had announced its intention to restructure, and seven months after the first offer or the start of the negotiations with creditors. And it was also, in terms of 
you know, how quickly the restructurings closed, it was fairly uniform. So you're looking at 30% of exchanges closed within two months, 50% uh, closed within four months, 80% of exchanges closed within 10 months. There were really only uh, four exchanges that took longer than one year to resolve. Argentina was one of them, also Dominican Republic, uh, Russia, and Cote d'Ivoire. In these other cases, delays were related to the parallel restructuring of uh, official debt going on at the same time, and also the commercial loan debt. And also in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, the civil conflict at the time. Now, also unlike Argentina, there was generally high level of participation in sovereign debt restructuring. Greater participation averaged 95%. In all but two cases, uh, participation rates were 90% or higher. In three quarter of cases, participation rates were 95% or higher. So fairly uniform uh, high participation levels in the debt exchange offers. Uh, we find that there were only two exchanges where you had holdout creditors representing more than 10% immediately after the exchange. One is, of course, the case of Argentina, where the initial participation rate was 76% in the 2005 exchange. And also the other case is the case of Dominica, where the participation initially was 72%. Later on, both participation rates came up. So after the 2010 uh, reopening of the debt exchange for Argentina, participation rate came up to 93%. And up to last year, the participation rate in the Dominica exchange was almost 100%. Dominica was also quite a different case. The, the complexity of the case there was in the fact that the bonds were stripped. So the, the principal payments were stripped from the interest payments, and they were sold to different and very diverse group of investors. So just tracking down the bond holdings was part of the challenge for, for that exchange. And lastly, unlike uh, Argentina, holdout litigation has not been an obstacle. So as I was saying at the beginning, out of the 34 modern era sovereign bond exchanges, Argentina is the only case that resulted in such persistent litigation. There were a few other court cases uh, filed over the years. They were generally not an obstacle to the conclusion of the debt exchange. And I have a few examples here. So there was one lawsuit filed in the case of Ecuador. Uh, one lawsuit filed uh, each in the case of Dominica, Grenada, and Pakistan. The amount in the Pakistan case was quite small. And also in the cases of Dominica and Grenada, there was political motivation having to do with the Taiwan-China relations. So there were separate factors that influenced those litigation cases. So just to conclude here, we find that this runs to the courthouse uh, have been really the exception uh, and not the rule when it comes to sovereign debt crisis resolution. So with that, what can we say in terms of uh, implications for future sovereign debt restructurings? So the first point that you're guessing I'm going to make right now is, given the experience of Argentina was such an outlier on so many dimensions, I think we need to be careful when we draw lessons for the future from a, new, from a case which was such, a, such an outlier as far as the historical experience goes. There are Several other factors that have to do with the, with the paripasso clauses in sovereign bond contracts, the existence of collecting, collective action clauses, and also the possible use of exit consents that could, in my opinion, limit the implications of the court ruling in the case of Argentina for future sovereign debt exchanges. And now let me say a little bit about each of those. So the paripasso clauses are not all equal. They're generally, I'll leave the find the details to our legal colleagues, but in general, the three formulations of the paripasso clause with various sort of risk for, for litigation, 
The low-risk formulation, which was common before 1990, says that the bonds rank pari passu with all external indebtedness and generally is considered to be not uh, readily susceptible to the rate of payment interpretation. There's a medium-risk formulation, which also might state that the bonds will rank pari passu in priority of payment and in rank of security, and also the so-called high-risk formulation, which adds that and shall be paid as such to the rank equally. So those last two versions basically are considered more susceptible to this rateable payment interpretation as they explicitly require equal treatment at the moment of payment. So in terms of prevalence of the pari passu clauses, empirical evidence suggests that sovereign bonds started uh, you know, increasingly incorporating the, more risky, the two more risky versions of the pari passu clause only in the 1990s and 2000s. So the, the, it is, was the, the low-risk formulation that was prevalent before that. And also about two-thirds of sovereign bonds issued in the 1990s, and almost half of the bonds which were issued in the 2000s contained the low-risk version of the pari passu clause. So that sort of limits the, the applicability of, of uh, Argentina-type litigation here. Uh, a couple of more issues around the pari passu clause. Argentina's case is also unique in that Argentina passed the so-called padlock law in 2005, which explicitly forbids the government to settle with holdout creditors. So it's, it's that law that effectively grants preferential status to one group of creditors over another. So if the courts choose to interpret the, you know, the court ruling with respect to this narrow sense to the padlock law rather than in a more broader sense, that would limit the implications for the applicability of this ruling to, to other sovereign cases. And finally, in terms of what's happening in the market in practice, what we are seeing recently is uh, basically the, the party pass clause is, is, is getting modified. And we've seen a couple of examples where currently bond contracts are being issued with sort of modified wording of the party pass clause language, which explicitly uh, is, is meant to, to explicitly say that the clause cannot be interpreted to mean basically equally rateable payment. So the, the, market is as, the market is adapting to this as we speak. The second, the second factor was the existence is the prevalence of collective action clauses. So collective action clauses and exit consents have already played a role in past sovereign bond exchanges. About 35% of sovereign debt exchanges since 1997 relied on using collective action clauses or exit consents to bind a larger share of creditors in the debt restructuring. Uh, collective action clauses basically allow a supermajority of creditors to amend the payment, the payment terms on the old bonds. The ex ex exit consents allow a majority, typically a smaller majority of creditors, to change the non-financial terms of the old bonds. Uh, collective action, so, so both of them, so they set sort of a lower threshold for the completion of a debt exchange, and in that way they limit the, the impact of a possible court ruling for future sovereign debt exchanges. In terms of the prevalence of the collective action clauses, empirical evidence shows that basically the vast majority of foreign law bond contracts contain collective action clauses. So English law bonds typically contain modification clauses, and they have contained that for, for, for a long time. And since uh, 2003, Collective action clauses were also introduced in New York law bonds, and they're now almost uh, included in almost all New York law issues. As far as local law bonds go, 
as we saw, and as, as was done in Greece last year, collective action clauses can actually be retroactively inserted by an act of parliament in, the, in, in domestic law bonds. So what, what this would mean is that this paripasu clause risk will be more applicable to New York law bonds, which are issued before 2003, which contain this high-risk version of the paripasu clause, but no collective action clauses. And the last, I think the last uh, point that I wanted to make uh, in terms of implication for future sovereign bond exchanges is the existence of uh, exit consents. So they have been used uh, a few, in a few cases in the past, but it is possible to actually legally subordinate holdout creditors using exit consents. Uh, exit consents require lower level of bondholder, of bondholder approval, and they could, for example, be used to either waive the paripasu or the negative pledge clauses on all debt. So again, they could limit, it's, it's another reason why, you know, they could limit the implications of Argentina-style court litigation for future sovereign restructurings. And I will leave it here, and I'm happy to take questions after that. Thank you. Oh, wow. Our last speaker is Dr. Arturo Porcerkansky. He's a distinguished economist in residence at American University. He's an expert in fi international finance, emerging markets, and Latin American economics. He previously taught at Columbia University, New York University, and Williams College. But it is a late arrival to academia, having spent most of his professional career working as an international economist on Wall Street. He carries out and publishes research in international finance, provides consulting services to legal and financial firms, as well as to the US, as US government agencies and multilateral institutions. He teaches at the International Defense College and serves as a dispute resolution arbiter for the, inter, for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Porsikansky received his PhD and MA on economics from the University of Pittsburgh. Please help me welcome Mr. Arturo Porsikansky. Well, good afternoon to all. Um, you're probably wondering, I certainly would be if I was in your seat, uh, why am I here on the other side of the looking glass being told that, you know, this is an exception, it's unlikely to be repeated, uh, who cares, it's not going to change anything. Uh, so lunch better be very good. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, I'm here to tell you that uh, you made the right choice uh, to come to this panel and inform yourself, uh, no matter how good the lunch is or isn't, because this is a case about utter disrespect for credit rights, for private property, for contracts, for good governance for basic freedoms, including freedom of the press and others. That's what this is about. The problem is not what if Argentina loses. The problem is if Argentina gets away with this murder. Uh, that's when, uh, as was mentioned, and I agree with Professor Ku, that's when people will say, well, then uh, the uh, the laws of the United States are like a, a naked emperor. Uh, they're not good. We're just depending on the uh, willingness 
of sovereigns to pay, and all those hundreds of pages of contracts aren't worth the paper they're written, written on. That's what's at stake here. And uh, it's, there is a, a very a straight line between the decision by a Peronist government in late 2001 uh, not to take ownership of the public debt that he had inherited and to neglect it, um, all the way down to yesterday's statement by President Kirchner that the widespread looting throughout the country that has taken place in the past week, including now with deaths and other casualties, uh, 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 are not her problem. That this is just a, you know, some kind of conspiracy by her opposition, and they're trying to destabilize her government. Uh, when, in fact, there are very real uh, and good reasons for uh, the breakdown of law and order in Argentina. Uh, as you might know, inflation has been running rampant in the country. Uh, and until recently, the government and private companies were able to grant more or less matching wage increases to the population so that if, if prices went up by 25%, in general, companies granted wage increases of 25%, and they passed it uh, down the line. But things have changed. Argentina has lost its competitiveness. Uh, GDP and employment have flattened out. Uh, companies now cannot afford uh, to give the wage increases uh, that match inflation. And the government can't either, because its tax revenues are also not keeping uh, pace with inflation. And so if you read any of the stories, you will notice that the main reason why uh, the looting uh, took place and was allowed to take place was because the police forces in all these uh, provincial cities went on strike, strike for higher pay. They wanted a raise of 50% and weren't happy with the 10 to 20% raises that were, that were being offered. The moment people found out that the good guys are on strike, uh, the bad guys come out and they loot the stores. Uh, so um, uh, this is a, this, there is this is not about one case. Uh, this is not about one default. This is about a, a dozen-year story of twenty-first uh, century populism, which is a smarter. Way, you know, variety than, than the 20th century populism. It's equally doomed to failure. It's failing as we speak. But uh, that is what explains uh, not just what you just heard, but all kinds of other things that you may have read about. It's why, for instance, uh, Argentina told the IMF and the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank uh, We'll only pay your debts if you keep lending to us. And at first, the multilateral agencies uh, in town didn't believe it, but then Argentina delayed payments to them, and they got the point. So they winked, and they've been lending to Argentina ever since, especially the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, they tried that with the US Exim Bank and other Exim Banks around the world. They didn't wink. They said, you pay first, then we'll talk. 
So they haven't gotten paid for a dozen years, not one cent. Uh, they haven't gone to the courts, but uh, uh, they are still waiting for payment, and they're exercising some pressure at the diplomatic margins. This is why Argentina has the most claims against it in ICSID, the premier international uh, investment dispute resolution center, because so many uh, Argentine and multinational companies have been uh, stepped on. They're, they have been expropriated without compensation, as in the case of uh, YPF Repsol. They have been uh, forbidden from raising uh, the prices of the goods and services they sell in Argentina. Uh, they've had other impediments put on them that uh, their contracts and the treaties under which they were brought to Argentina said uh, that wouldn't happen to them. So that is uh, the takeaway, and that is why the case of Argentina is so important, because it's a case of uh, government run amok uh, it's a case of what happens when you disrespect uh, the essential uh, human freedoms and rights. And so it's very appropriate that we're here today, and especially at Cato, talking about this case, because that is what it's about. And if Argentina gets away with it, uh, then others uh, will try to get away with it too. And the only reason why they've gotten away with it this far, because a dozen years is a long time, is because their commodity prices have been so favorable. As you might know, Argentina is a major producer of soybeans and wheat and other commodities which have had a spectacular run of prices. They're lower than the peaks that were reached a year or two ago, but they're still two or three times what they used to be. And that's enough uh, to feed uh, the government, or at least it was until recently, because the government taxes exports and of course taxes, corporate incomes, and so on. So they have been uh, one of the prime beneficiaries of the commodities boom because it goes directly into their pocket even if they are not the owners of the land that produces the wheat, the corn, the beef, and so on. And uh, this 21st century of populism uh, not only involves, as I mentioned, disrespecting the courts of the United States and investors in the United States. And by the way, I don't know about you, but I have a 401k. Uh, I, 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 I know that all those mutual funds invest all over the world. And I don't want to be like we have many creditors, including 50,000 Italian, mostly retirees, who are uh, pressing their case through ICSID. Uh, because their bonds, which was, were supposed to be their retirement income, have gone unpaid for 12 years. I don't want to be in that situation where uh, I'm told that, uh, sorry, you can't count on the money you expected to because, you know, uh, we invested in a bunch of countries and they've decided not to pay. And based on the precedent that Argentina set back in 2013, 2014, they don't have to. So... Uh, I think we should take this case very seriously. And if you look at what's going on in Argentina, you, you just see that uh, sooner or later it can't go on. They're just making too many enemies, not only outside, the United, outside Argentina, but inside Argentina. Populism has a familiar uh, story, a familiar path. Populism is called populism because in the beginning it's popular. Uh, 
You freeze prices of essential goods, including uh, public utilities. Uh, you nationalize other people's properties. Uh, you don't pay your debts. Uh, you grant wage increases by decree. Uh, you print uh, money as if uh, there is no tomorrow. And, you know, in the beginning, it works. Uh, so Argentina started out with an export boom. But in the past many years, uh, GDP growth, if at all, has occurred because of a booming consumption and investment. And if you look, what kind of investment is it? It's mostly housing investment. Why? Because since people are, are getting interest rates of much less than inflation, if they put the money in the bank or in, 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 in bonds, corporate or government bonds, they're doing what uh, our parents used to do in the high inflation days in Latin America. They would they'll buy a second, a third, a fourth apartment. They'll buy a second, a third, a fourth car. And so it's mostly autos and, and residential housing and so on that, that have uh, maintained employment and the economy going. Uh, but as I say, if you look at it, uh, the list of enemies is uh, growing, enemies of the state, and also the model is running out of gas. And it's running out of gas because at the rate that they're spending, at the rate that they're printing money, uh, commodity prices would have to double or triple again in order to uh, keep up with the spending boom and the printing presses. And that's just not happening. Uh, we don't know when the Fed is going to start raising rates, but already we're all preparing ourselves for that day. Uh, and even in the case of Argentina, although uh, the government has not been able to access the capital, international capital markets for the past dozen years, even in Argentina, the repercussions of a tighter monetary stance in the north will be felt. But above all, I believe commodity prices will probably decline some more because uh, commodities have become another financial speculative asset just like any other. And I think uh, when you can fund a position in the commodities market at very low interest rates, it's one thing. And when you can't, it's another. So uh, as I mentioned, um, uh, especially President Kirchner is making a lot of enemies now, not just outside Argentina. Uh, they've upset the British by you know, stirring the, the Falklands uh, nest. Uh, they've upset um, the Spanish with the nationalization uh, of uh, Repsol's YPF. Uh, they've upset the US government uh, by the way they've mistreated uh, US investors. And, um, and now, inside Argentina also, uh, her popularity has plunged. And uh, she is, her term of office runs to two years from now. I'll make a prediction. She ain't going to make it. You heard it here first. Um, she ain't going to make it uh, because she's losing control of the streets. And when you lose control of the streets, that's a very bad sign. Uh, she's lost other controls, too, like of prices and <laughs> market forces and so on, uh, the trade balance and whatever. But I think uh, losing control of the streets is something that historically in Argentina and elsewhere has led to somebody eventually uh, tapping the sitting president on the shoulder and saying, uh, sir or madam, uh, your helicopter is waiting. Uh, and I think uh, that's what's happening. There is a narrow window of opportunity here for the Argentine government to do a 180-degree turn 
and do the right thing. Uh, start making friends out of enemies and stop alienating uh, the, uh, interest groups and the people in general and start uh, doing better things. And um, we may see some of that. You never know. In recent weeks, uh, you might know that uh, Mrs. Kirshner had a medical problem. And during her absence and since her return, uh, they have taken some very odd steps uh, to break bread with some of their uh, sworn enemies. Uh, so, for instance, as you might know, for many, many years, um, the government of Argentina has berated the so-called vulture investors uh, who have been pursuing them in the courts of the United States and elsewhere. They never mention uh, the tens of thousands of ordinary uh, retail investors in Argentina and outside of Argentina that are also in the courts or in arbitration tribunals. It's just that this part, these particular investors are leading the charge, but there's many behind them uh, uh, following. And so, uh, I don't know if you read, but uh, they uh, contracted a vulture, uh, as per their definition, uh, to go out and uh, buy up uh, some of the outstanding claims. Uh, these were awards, one uh, at ICSID and another dispute resolution center, which Argentina had refused to pay. And they reached uh, an indirect settlement by paying bond through bonds, not in cash. They don't have that much cash. Uh, and, um, and so here they are. Um, and uh, they actually also uh, are entering into arrangements with other uh, similar uh, vulture, uh, to use their language, investors to maybe reach out and enter into a deal uh, with the uh, holdout uh, creditors. So this is no, no more a story of a titanic struggle uh, between uh, you know, a very nice lady sitting in Buenos Aires and uh, evil people uh, sitting in New York and beyond. Uh, no, this is like a vulture versus vulture uh, <laughs> uh, story. So it's really very interesting. And um, it just goes to show you that anything is possible. Uh, your enemy uh, yesterday can be your friend today. And so uh, I never give up hope that we will see Argentina uh, doing the right thing uh, in the days and weeks to come because I think uh, this is their last chance. And if not, uh, I would like uh, for my forecast to be proven wrong, won't be the first time, but um, I think that the only way that my forecast will be proven wrong is if indeed the government of Argentina keeps doing an 80, 180 degree turn and does the right thing for a change. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think we've heard a very thorough uh, explanation about the legal and economic aspects and political aspects of this case. Uh, given that we started late, I'm going to waive my privilege of, as, a, as a moderator to ask the first question. I'm going to go to you, the public. We have two mics, uh, so if you have a question, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and please keep the uh, question short. We have one over there. Hi, my name is Martin Anderson. Uh, the question I have uh, goes to particularly 
Dr. Porzhakonsky's last uh, statements about uh, the current government, much of which I share. They are so corrupt. I mean, they rival Carlos Menem's government in uh, uh, sending private bank accounts to uh, to Switzerland. Um, they've gone after the press in the most uh, ignominious sort of way. Um, they, they've really destroyed what was left of an honorable police force and a tradition of, of service in that police force that Raul Alfonsin started. But my question is, while you're talking about part of the history, sir, you're not talking about all the history. You're not talking about uh, Chase uh, and the Rockefeller family's support of the dirty war. You're not talking about the time that Carlos Menem was equally corrupt and equally vicious against the press. This is the kind of context that allows these people, like Ms. Kirshner, to survive. And even if she's taking some uh, interesting steps today, that might be just uh, divide and conquer of the opposition. I think the historical thing, and I, I think the presentations were excellent, but I think the historical context politically is very, very important. And I wonder, um, how do you see that historical con uh, context that allows people like the Kirchners to continue on with their, um, with their idiocy? Well, um, so um, now you'll understand why I, I never bought an Argentine bond and I never will. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, it really uh, boggles the mind because this is a country that has had populist experiments in the past that ended very badly. And even though, as I say, this is a 21st century, uh, smarter uh, um, uh, approach than the more brutish approach that we saw either in a Perón Mark II in the early 70s or the first uh, Perón administration and so on, um, it's still uh, pathetic to think that the Argentine population was fooled uh, to the extent that it was, and that it, to think that it has taken this long for them to become disenchanted. Uh, you know, not even two years ago, they, they, they voted for her, uh, they re-elected her. Uh, it was a chance to, to send the message uh, that uh, they could see that this wasn't going in the right direction and, and to do something about it. But, uh, well, some say that, uh, you know, there are sociological, even psychological explanations. But that's why I, I mention it, that, that the case is so important, because... Uh, here is a perfectly rich country uh, being ruined. Uh, there are other cases, Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe. Um, there are other cases where this has happened, and it's, it's very sad. But as I say, I think the, the key is, is, is what is the takeaway. I'll, I'll also mention it looks like Chief Bratton is coming back to head the NYPD. And you may remember he was an advocate of... Uh, the broken window approach to policing, whereby you take seriously uh, the small things, because oftentimes if you pull from that string, you get the big things. And in fact, a lot of the people who were jumping turnstiles in New York City and so on turned out to be people who carried uh, weapons or who had uh, outstanding warrants on them and so on. So even if you begin you know, with the, what the cases that seem the exception to the rule and seems very small, you might land a very big fish. So I think this is the same thing here. 
this is a, a, a precedent-setting case no matter how it comes out, no matter how it comes out. And I hope it comes out uh, in a way that uh, reinforces uh, creditor rights, contract rights, private property, and the like. Thanks. We have one more question here. And then, ma'am. When uh, you uh, showed... Can you identify yourself, please? My name is Ulrich Heve. When you showed the history of the defaults, it's quite obvious that they all happen in a talkery way. It's not like when you have national bankruptcy legislation with companies, it's pre-structured. Greece was again an example. Cyprus was a disaster the first round. Why, in your opinion, have we not succeeded, and the IMF tried many years ago, and Gregor, why have we not succeeded to put international rules and orderly process to the default process? Maybe this is like the whole discussion on whether the IMF should set up a bankruptcy court. I don't know if... I mean, I, I do think that there was a big movement and to, to do this, and the IMF was a big advocate of it, and I know the U.S. Treasury at, at various times has been supportive of it. I think the, the problem is, is, is getting consensus um, on, on how to do this, because you can't bind uh, people. You can't, it's really hard to bind sovereigns into this, into this process. And so the, the, I, I think that part of the problem is the weakness of international institutions and international institutions, uh, although they have some advantages, are subject to regulatory capture or capture by private interests as well. I think those are the things that have been preventing, um, I think, some sort of consensus on what kind of sovereign bankruptcy-like <laughs> mechanism might be created. I think in some ideal world where international institutions work better than they do, I think we, we could imagine a situation where that could work. But my own just view is that international institutions, I don't like domestic courts necessarily handling this, and I don't like the way this has worked out. But I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of the ability of international institutions to fashion results in a in a fair manner right now. Thank you. I am Silvia Pisani with La Nación in Argentina. Um, I would like to go back to the technical approach of the discussion and thank you for doing this. It was really highlighting. Uh, I would like to. If uh, Dr. Sam's prediction is okay, is right, we are, we are in front of the last uh, 15 or maybe 14 months of this discussion. You said about uh, 2015. And if Mr. Porzekanski is wrong in the prediction, maybe we are going to see the final of this uh, situation. So I would like to, to know what can we expect in, expect in this uh, 15 or 16 months ahead? Um, because it seems to be that there's a line of negotiation between some holdouts and the government. And this, has, this, this situation has a different approach. Based on your experience, Mrs. Dugar, you talk about, for example, the Dominican Republic. Do you think, you, you said that before there was a 72% and then they agree to a negotiation or I don't know. So what is your expectation of reaching to an agreement between the, the, the holdouts and the Argentinian government. Uh, Mr. Samp, in this situation, uh, if there is a negotiation, what kind of negotiation can we expect? Is it possible that the, the Argentinian government offer more than they offer to the, to the bondholders? Bond 
they can they do that? And Mr. Prosekansky, do you think that politically is there any uh, possibility, any possibility of doing this? And Mr. Ku, uh, I don't know. I don't have. I don't have any particular question for you. So it's not personal. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Stuger. Well, difficult to make predictions where the case is going to go legally, but uh, there's several sort of scenarios of how this can play out. And then again, from a reading perspective, uh, we're really looking at, you know, the old bonds are already in default. So we're looking at the bonds which are currently be being paid out, what happens to them. So in the scenario in which Argentina, Argentina continues to pay, uh, so either one scenario is the one where Argentina continues to pay on the restructured bonds, and that will be the case even if 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 the court rules in favor of uh, Argentina, or if the case if the court rules uh, against Argentina, but, but there's no way to enforce it. In both of those scenarios, the restructured bondholders continue to get paid. The other scenario is where the restructured bondholders do not get paid, and Argentina goes into default on the restructured uh, bonds, and that that will come in a case where the the court rules again Argentina against Argentina, and Argentina does not comply. So they might decide to uh, if, if if they are asked to pay holdout creditors as they are paying on the restructured bondholders, Argentina might just refuse to pay anybody at all, in which case the restructured bondholders do not get paid as well. And we are looking at the default on the, on the restructured bonds as well. Or alternatively, Argentina might decide, and there, there, was, uh, there were um, suggestions about this, is to offer a debt swap where they swap the, the bonds which are currently under foreign law to be swapped into bonds under Argentinian law so that Argentina can continue to pay, but pay them in, in, uh, in Argentina so that they will not be able to be attached in any court ruling. In that case, uh, you know, this, it's, it's likely to take time. So it's, it's you know, in, in, this is my personal opinion, but it's, it's going to be difficult to do this seamlessly so that there's no, you know, breach of payment on the restructured bondholders. So I think it's, it's sort of a long long shot of doing that seamlessly. That is an error takes place. I will uh, advise the bondholders to remember that chant, Argentina, Argentina, you know, because it's... <laughs> Mr. Porzekanski. Oh, I think Richard should... Speak. All right, Richard. I, first of all, have absolutely no idea what sort of negotiations are going on behind the scenes. There have been several attempts at negotiations up to this point. For example, earlier this year, immediately after oral arguments in the Second Circuit, some of the judges on the Second Circuit thought they saw Argentina making some sort of offer, and they asked Argentina to submit something in writing about what they might be willing to do. But it was very clear then and in other instances that the parties have totally different ideas even now as to what a realistic compromise would be. I mean, for example, Argentina has, on several occasions, come back to the table with an offer of, okay, we'll temporarily get rid of the lock law and give almost as good a deal to holdouts as they could have had in 2005. And obviously, people don't hold out for eight years and then accept a deal that's worse than what they could have gotten eight years ago. So I, I don't think that there are, are uh, uh, 
any short-term prospects for a settlement just because the parties um, have such different expectations. I also don't think there's any realistic chance that Argentina will be able to set up an alternate method of payment uh, to the exchange bondholders simply because uh, while Argentina really can't effectively be held in contempt of court for violating the injunction, uh, many of the other parties who would have to cooperate with such an alternative payment system uh, could be held in contempt of court. And I don't believe that any U.S. banks would be uh, uh, willing to uh, uh, or would want to have to go in front of Judge Griesa in New York and explain why they're doing what they're doing. So I, I don't see any possibility of that kind of settlement. Uh, I, I do see uh, that eventually Argentina wants to get back into the uh, private capital markets, and to do so it will have to do something, but it, it probably won't be in the short term. Forsikanki, one last comment. Yeah, so we're living through very unpredictable times in Argentina because I think that uh, the administration realizes that it's at the end of the rope, and so the good thing is this might be a very good opportunity uh, to start fresh and and to, as I say, turn enemies into friends, and and in some cases they'll have to turn friends into enemies. But uh, dealing with the situation, or uh, you might have a, you know, band-aid approach, uh, which buys time until some a graceful exit can be arranged. But uh, it's, it's very um, very unpredictable right now. Well, unfortunately, we run out of time. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, let's thank the panel again for, for their wonderful presentations. Thank you.